Chapter Twenty Two, Part One, of Run to Earth, a novel, by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Gail Mattern. Chapter Twenty Two, Part One, Arch Traitor Within, Arch Plotter Without. The guests at Hallgrove Rectory this Christmas time were Douglas Dale, Sir Reginald Eversleigh, a lady and gentleman called Mordaunt and their two pretty fair-faced daughters, and two other old friends of the rector's, one of whom is very familiar to us. Those two were Gordon Graham and his sister Lydia, the woman whose envious hatred had aided in that vile scheme by which Sir Oswald Eversleigh's happiness had been suddenly blighted. The Dales and Gordon Graham had been intimate from boyhood, when they had been schoolfellows at Eton. Since Sir Oswald's death had enriched the two brothers— Gordon Graham had taken care that his acquaintance with them should not be allowed to lapse, but should rather be strengthened. It was by means of his manoeuvring that the invitation for Christmas had been given, and that he and his sister were comfortably domiciled for the winter season beneath the rector's hospitable roof. Gordon Graham had been very anxious to secure this invitation. Every day that passed made him more and more anxious that his sister should make a good marriage. Her thirtieth birthday was alarmingly near at hand. Careful as she was of her good looks, the day must soon come when her beauty would fade, and she would find herself among the ranks of confirmed old maids. If Gordon Graham found her a burden now, how much greater burden would she be to him then? As the cruel years stole by, and brought her no triumph, no success, her temper grew more imperious, while the quarrels which marred the harmony of the brother and sister's affection became more frequent and more violent. Beyond this one all-sufficient reason, Gordon Graham had his own selfish motives for seeking to secure his sister a rich husband. The purse of a wealthy brother-in-law must, of course, be always more or less open to himself, and he was not the man to refrain from obtaining all he could from such a source." In Lionel Dale he saw a man who would be the easy victim of a woman's fascinations, the generous dupe of an adventurer. Lionel Dale was, therefore, the prize which Lydia should try to win. The brother and sister were in the habit of talking to each other very plainly. "'Now, Lydia,' said the captain, after he had read Lionel Dale's letter for the young lady's benefit, "'it will be your fault if you do not come back from Hallgrove, the affianced wife of this man.' There was a time when you might have tried for heavier stakes, but at thirty, a husband with five thousand a year is not to be sneezed at. You need not be so fond of reminding me of my age, Lydia returned with a look of anger. You seem to forget that you are five years my senior. I forget nothing, my dear girl, but there is no parallel between your case and mine. For a man, age is nothing. For a woman, everything and I regret to be obliged to remember that you are approaching your thirtieth birthday. Fortunately, you don't look more than seven and twenty, and I really think, if you play your cards well, you may secure this country rector. A country rector is not much for a woman who has set her cap at a duke, but he is better than nothing, and as the case is really growing rather desperate, you must play your cards with unusual discrimination this time, Lydia. You must— upon my word i am tired of playing my cards answered miss graham contemptuously 
"'It seems as if life was always to be a losing game for me. "'Let me play my cards how I will. "'I begin to think there is a curse upon me, "'and that no act of mine will ever prosper. "'Who was that man in your Greek play "'who guessed some inane conundrum "'and was always getting into trouble afterwards? "'I begin to think there really is a fatality in these things.' She turned away from her brother impatiently, and seated herself at her piano. She played a few bars of a waltz with a listless air, while the captain lighted a cigar and stepped out upon the little balcony overhanging the dull, foggy street. The brother and sister occupied lodgings in one of the narrow streets of Mayfair. The apartments were small, shabbily furnished, inconvenient and expensive, but the situation was irreproachable and the haughty Lydia could only exist in an irreproachable situation. Captain Graham finished his cigar and went out to his club, leaving his sister alone, discontented, gloomy, sullen, to get through the day as best she might. The time had been when the prospect of a visit to Hallgrove Rectory would have seemed very pleasant to her, but that time was gone. The haughty spirit was soured by disappointment, the selfish nature embittered by defeat. There was a glass over the mantelpiece. Lydia leaned her arms upon the marble slab and contemplated the dark face in the mirror. It was a handsome face, but a cloud of sullen pride obscured its beauty. "'I shall never prosper,' she said as she looked at herself. "'There is some mysterious ban upon me and on my beauty. All my life I have been passed by for the sake of women in every attribute my inferiors.' If I was unloved in the freshness of my youth and beauty, how can I expect to be loved now, when youth is past, and beauty is on the wane? And yet my brother expects me to go through the old stage play, in the futile hope of winning a rich husband. She shrugged her shoulders with a contemptuous gesture, and turned away from the glass. But, although she affected to despise her brother's schemes, she was not slow to lend herself to them. She went out that morning and walked to her milliner's house. There was a long and rather an unpleasant interview between the milliner and her customer, for Lydia Graham had sunk deeper in the mire of debt with every passing year, and it was only by the payment of occasional sums of money on account that she contrived to keep her creditors tolerably quiet. The result of today's interview was the same as usual. Madame Suzanne, the milliner, agreed to find some pretty dresses for Miss Graham's Christmas visit, and Miss Graham undertook to pay a large installment of an unreasonable bill without inspection or objection. On this snowy Christmas morning, Miss Graham stood by the side of her host, dressed in the stylish walking costume of dark grey poplin, and with her glowing face set off by a bonnet of blue velvet, with soft grey plumes. Those were the days in which a bonnet was at once the aegis and the sanctuary of beauty. If you offended her, she took refuge in her bonnet. The police courts have only become odious by the clamor of feminine complainants since the disappearance of the bonnet. It was awful as the helmet of Minerva, inviolable as the cestus of Diana. Nor was the bonnet of thirty years ago an unbecoming headgear. A pretty face never looked prettier than when dimly seen in the shadowy depths of a coal-scuttle bonnet. Miss Graham looked her best in one of those forgotten headdresses. The rich velvet, the drooping feathers, set off her showy face, 
and Laura and Ellen Mordaunt, in their fresh young beauty and simple costume, lost by contrast with the aristocratic belle. The poor of Hallgrove Parish looked forward eagerly to the coming of Christmas. Lionel Dale's parishioners knew that they would receive ample bounty from the hand of their wealthy and generous rector. He loved to welcome old and young to the noble hall of his mansion, a spacious and lofty chamber, which had formed part of the ancient manor-house, and had been of late years converted into a rectory. He loved to see them clad in the comfortable garments which his purse had provided. The old women in their grey woollen gowns and scarlet cloaks, the little children brightly arrayed like so many red riding-hoods. It was a pleasant sight, truly, and there was a dimness in the rector's eyes, as he stood at the head of a long table at two o'clock on Christmas Day, to say grace before the dinner spread for those humble Christmas guests. All the poor of the parish had been invited to dine with their pastor on Christmas Day, and this two o'clock dinner was a greater pleasure to the rector of Hallgrove than the repast which was to be served at seven o'clock for himself and the guests of his own rank. There were some people in Hallgrove and its neighbourhood who said that Lionel Dale took more pleasure in this life than a clergyman and a good Christian should take, but surely those who had seen him seated by the bed of sickness or ministering to the needs of affliction could scarcely have grudged him the innocent happiness of his hours of relaxation. The one thing in which he himself felt that he was perhaps open to blame was in his passion for the sports of the field. No one who had stood amongst the little group at the top of the long table in Hallgrove Manor House on this snowy Christmas morning could have doubted that the heart of Lionel Dale was true to the very core. He was not alone amongst his poor parishioners— his guests had requested permission to see the two o'clock dinner party in the refectory. Lydia affected to be especially anxious for this privilege. "'I long to see the dear things eating their Christmas plum pudding,' she said with almost girlish enthusiasm. Mr. Dale's parishioners did ample justice to the splendid Christmas fare provided for them. Lydia Graham declared she had never witnessed anything that gave her half so much pleasure as this humble gathering.' "'I would give up a whole season of fashionable dinner-parties for such a treat as this, Mr. Dale,' she exclaimed, with an eloquent glance at the rector. "'What a happy life yours must be, and how privileged these people ought to think themselves.' "'I don't know that, Miss Graham,' answered Lionel Dale. "'I think the privilege is all on my side. It is the pleasure of the rich to minister to the wants of the poor.' Lydia Graham made no reply but her eyes expressed an admiration which womanly reserve might have forbidden her lips to utter. While the pudding was being eaten, Mr. Dale walked round amongst his humble guests to exchange a few kindly words here and there, to shake hands, to pat little children's flaxen heads, to make friendly inquiries for the sick and absent. As he paused to talk to one of his parishioners, his attention was attracted by a strange face— it was the face of an old man, who sat at the opposite side of the table, and seemed entirely absorbed by the agreeable task of making his way through a noble slice of plum pudding. "'Who is that old man opposite?' asked Lionel, of the agricultural labourer to whom he had been talking. "'I don't think I know his face.' "'No, sir,' answered the farm labourer. "'He don't belong to these parts. Gaffer Hayfield brought him. 
I suppose as how he's a relation of Gaffer's. It seems a bit of a liberty, sir, but Gaffer Hayfield always were a cool hand. I don't think it is a liberty, William. If the man is a relation of Hayfield's, there is no reason why he should not be here with the Gaffer, answered Lionel good-naturedly. I am glad to see that he is enjoying his dinner. Yes, sir, replied the farm labourer with a grin. He seems to have an uncommon good twist of his own, whosoever he belongs to. No more was said about the strange guest, who was an old man with very white hair, which hung low over his eyebrows, and very white whiskers, which almost covered his cheeks. He had a queer, bird-like aspect, and a nose that was as sharp as the beak of any of the rooks, cawing hoarsely amongst the elms of Hallgrove that snowy Christmas day. After the dinner in the old hall, Lionel Dale and his guests returned to their own quarters. Mrs. Mordaunt and the three younger ladies walked in the grounds, with Douglas Dale and Sir Reginald Eversleigh in attendance upon them. Miss Graham was the last woman in the world to forget that the income of Douglas Dale was almost as large as that of his brother, the rector, and that, in this instance, she might have two strings to her bow. She contrived to be by the side of Douglas as they walked in the shrubberies, and lingered on the rustic bridge across the river. But she had not been with him long before she perceived that all her fascinations were thrown away upon him, and that, attentive and polite though he was, his heart was far away. It was indeed so. In that pleasant garden, where the dark evergreens glistened in the red radiance of the winter sunset, Douglas Dale's thoughts wandered away from the scene before him to the lovely Austrian woman, the fair widow, whose life was so strange a mystery to him, the woman whom he could neither respect nor trust, but whom, in spite of himself, he loved better than any other creature upon earth. "'I had rather be by her side than here,' he said to himself. "'How is she spending this season, which should be so happy? Perhaps in utter loneliness, or in the midst of that artificial gaiety which is more wretched than solitude.'" End of chapter 22, part 1